Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Trump economy. And Richard, as uh, many of our listeners will recall, you have pretty much throughout Donald Trump's presidency suggested that we take an a la carte approach to the president, trying to sort of separate out the policy from the personality and then take each respective policy area on the merits. And lately you've been in a pretty bullish mood when it comes to Trump and the economy, and you say in a recent piece at Defining Ideas that one of the people who deserves the most praise for that is a woman who may be unknown to many of our listeners by the name of Naomi Rao. Tell us who she is and why she deserves so much credit. Well, um, in her public role, um, Naomi is the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which is a subset of the Department of the Budget or the Budget Office. And what it does is it reviews and makes very strong recommendations as to which regulatory programs should be kept and which ones should be removed. Uh, but you have to know where she was before. Uh, she was an associate professor. She should have been a professor at George Mason uh, University Law School, the Antonin Scalia Law School, and she is, I'm happy to say, a uh, graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, and we work very closely together to bring the Federal Society Convention for Students there before she graduated. I think it was in 1997. And on a more personal level, when she worked at the Institute for Justice, one of the people she mentored was my daughter. Uh, so I have very warm feelings towards um, Naomi. But more importantly, what happens is she's somebody with a consistent vision who seems to understand that regulation is a mistake perhaps even an evil, unless it could be shown to be a good. And there are many kinds of regulations that you can show to be a good. And the way in which you know that they're a good is nobody talks about them, which means that they're so incorporated into the fabric of business and social life uh, that they don't give rise to any comments. So if you ask your listeners here, how many know what the statute of frauds is and how many could give you the major exceptions to its application? Uh, most people here don't know what the term means, but they know it's a good idea, generally speaking, that major contracts for the sale of real estate have to be in writing to be in force. And that's what the statute of frauds dating from 1676 provide. And I don't think when Naomi thinks about regulation, she's putting topics like that on the table, which would be a catastrophe for the way in which complicated transactions go. But it's one thing to have regulations that support market transactions. And it's another thing to start putting in various kinds of rules, which essentially slow them down. So essentially, when you're dealing with market transactions and you have good regulations, what you do is you follow what I sometimes call, based on the old advertisement, the Fram filter principle. And this says, says the guy, he said, you could pay me now and put in a nice clean filter, or you could pay me later when the car gets wrecked, right? And what happens is by putting in these regulations at the front end by way of formality, you don't limit the terms of trade, but you make it much easier to avoid litigation at the back end and much easier easier to resolve that litigation should it occur. So regulations like that have a huge positive effect on the way in which a government runs. But the kinds of regulations you're after are those which essentially limit the scope of freedom of contract. And they're not making sure that you can litigate a contract voluntarily arranged. What they're doing is they're limiting the kinds of things you can do. And the Obama administration specialized in doing this kind of stuff. 
higher minimum wage laws, more strict enforcement of the anti-discrimination laws, more aggressive application of the labor statutes and so forth. And what these things do is essentially they take the potential gains from trade and they put huge taxes on them so that many fewer transactions take place because the gains get smaller and in some cases they're non-existent. Uh, so what you will see in labor markets in particular is a kind of sluggish kind of behavior and growth rates that won't go up. Well, how do you get rid of that? Well, somebody like Naomi, what she does is she helps pare away at the regulatory morass that governs the situation, simplifies the way business works. And it's not only the stuff that she and her fellow officers have done while in office. It's the message they send about future behavior uh, for the next several years. Everybody knows that the vector is down, uh, that there are going to be many more regulations that are going to be pulled off the market and very few that are going to be added. And the ones that are going to be added are generally going to be market reinforcement rather than not. Well, there is a school, and I'll end on this note for the moment at least, of people like Paul Krugman who sort of think that the only thing that matters in the world are things like tax policy and monetary policy. I'm very much the anti-Keynesian on this particular point. It's not that those things don't matter, but regulation often matters because to the extent that you could remove regulation from sector after sector and from activity after activity, you increase the possibility from gains from trade. And then you could compound that by simply easing up on the enforcement of other regulations that are in place given the huge discretion you have. So between the slowdown in enforcement and the peering away of administrative layers, we have essentially started to see these markets moving up. You look today, Walmart's is now giving signing bonuses. And Walmart says our minimum wage is now $11. Well, what's going on here is they actually have to chase down labor because the markets have turned. And the people who insisted that we're in an age of permanent stagnation confuse stupid regulation with some inherent condition of an economy. If you just follow good old laissez-faire principles on these kinds of issues, you can do fine. And that's what Naomi is committed to. You say in this piece that while this is a great start, it's also important that the Trump administration be steadfast in resisting new regimes of labor market regulation. And you point in particular to one proposal that is starting to woo progressives, which would get rid of the practice of employment at will and move to a standard of just cause for people who aren't up on their employment law. Explain the difference between those two and why that proposal would be, in your judgment, so pernicious. A true disaster. Well, the definition of a contracted will is essentially uh, you can decide to fire somebody for good reason, for bad reason, or no reason at all. And they can decide to quit for good reason, bad reason, no reason at all. And so the critics of the contracted will say employers will always fire for bad reason. Employees will always quit for good reasons. Employers have all the power. So employees should always have the right to quit without explanation. But employers have to give a, quote, just cause explanation as to why they're letting somebody go. Now, once you do that, essentially every labor contract starts to look like a union contract, which is you let somebody go and there's now a litigable issue as you let them go because there was a downturn in the economic market or because there was inferior performance of one sort or another or that some new labor equipment was introduced into the place, that you're changing the location of your plant. There are thousands of things which may or may not be cataloged as just cause. So every dismissal now becomes an actionable situation. And this is total suicide in terms of the way in which you work. 
even with the contract at will, there is one very narrow doctrine, which is worth preserving, and nobody again ever argues about it. Suppose you're a salesman, and you do all the work in order to land a contract, and then they fire you on Monday, and on Tuesday, the contract is landed, and they try to deny you the commission for work already done. And the answer is you could never get away from that. You have to pay them for work that's completed, even if it turns out that the contract is perfected only after you go. And this is designed to protect against serious forms of strategic misbehavior on the part of employers. But otherwise, no matter where you look in the labor market, whether you're talking to people at the top or people at the bottom, everybody starts from the contract at will. It's not a function of doing it to little people or to big people. You do it with everybody. And then what you do is if it turns out that you've got some unique situation, you draft a contract which can deal with this. So to give you the simplest variation, somebody wants security that they're not going to be fired. No one that I'm aware of ever has granted a four-cause clause in a voluntary market. What they say is we will give you a fixed sum by way of severance pay if we let you go, and then they'll set out the schedule. Here for a year, you get a month. Ten years, you get ten months or whatever. And so the... What they're trying to do is to essentially say, by writing about this stuff, of which they know essentially nothing, that the combined business judgment of every firm, large and small, in the entire history of the United States, should yield to what some union guy believes is a smart way of running business. Now, why do they have such power? Because they could always identify, even hypothetically, sometimes really, some cases in which jerks actually fire people for stupid reasons. But you never want to change a market in which there are 150 million employees to deal with 10, 20, 100, or even 1,000 aberrant cases a year. So what do you do? If it turns out that there's something that's going on that's serious, like it's defamation when you fire somebody, the Google guy, you know, who got bounced because of his statements about the gender gaps and so forth, in my mind, he probably does have a cause of action. It may have been a breach of contract on the one hand. They promised to keep you and have an open inquiry. Or it may be that they defamed him. I'm not going to pass judgment on it. But idiosyncratic cases like that are always handled best in the ex post universe that is after the thing has happened. And the last thing anyone wants to do is to make a union contract, which is bulky and efficient and generally non-productive, the norm for non-union industries. This would be a genuine catastrophe, which one has to resist with all might and main. I want to take you to a couple of other economic issues for a moment, and let me have you turn now to taxes, and specifically the balance between the federal government and the states, because you and I talked in the past about the provision in the tax bill that just passed that capped the state and local tax deduction at $10,000, previously been unlimited. And this has been particularly menacing to your high-tax states like New York and California, where the fear is that by raising the effective tax rates on the kind of wealthy citizens who were deducting a lot, you run the risk of driving them out of the state and affecting those states' budgets. We have, since the bill has passed, and this is our first show since then, seen increasingly creative ways by which these states are thinking about gaming this. They've talked about shifting the burden to the employer side of payroll taxes where it'd still be deductible. They've even talked about in some cases trying to reclassify the revenues, charitable donations. Yes. What's your reaction to those kinds of proposals and how should these states be thinking about coping with this new landscape? 
Well, these are unprincipled devices, all of which are complete and total shams. The very fact that you're talking about substituting in a contrivance which you hope will be deductible for one that you know is not deductible is proof positive that this thing is done for tax and only tax reasons. Generally speaking, in order to make these things work as a tax matter, you have to show some kind of legitimate business purpose. And a legitimate business purpose has to be something related to the economy or employees and so forth, never to the internal revenue service. Uh, the number of cases which have struck down sham arrangements like this is so long that you could probably spend hours just going into one after another. And, and so this thing is going to fail and should fail. So the question is, what should these states do? And I think the answer comes from the Hippocratic Oath in that tradition. Physicians would say, heal thyself, O states. Um, what you're doing is essentially you're trying to run an unsustainable form of redistribution. And what you do is you announce, as you always announce in these cases, that all the power in the economy is done by the richest people in it. And so the way in which we show that they are powerful is they earn 20% of the income within the state, and then we tax them for 40% of our state revenues. Something which is that top-heavy is just waiting for people to leave. And what these states have to understand is that the only way they're going to make this thing work is if they cut back on the high progressivity. In a place like Illinois, it's with the real estate taxes, not so much with the income tax, in order to make the state hospitable. And if you try to run it the other way, this is what's going to happen. You'll get a smaller basis. Your richest people will start to leave. Then you'll jack up the rates again. You'll drive some more people out. And in the end, what will happen is the principle of adverse selection will mean that jurisdictional competition will make Florida and Texas and Tennessee rich, happy, and prosperous cases and will leave New York a basket case. So what you have to do, even if your name is Bill de Blasio or Jerry Brown, is to say, look, I want to have a large base, and the only way I can get that is to have a set of low races. I'm going to go into competition with these other states and lower things down. And somebody's going to say, well, if you do that, you know, you may have to repeal some of your transfer programs, to which the answer is, Maybe you should repeal some of these particular transfer programs or your labor regulations of one kind or another. A state like California passes one damn proposition after another. I mean, dumb is the word. And then they want everybody else to substitute them. You know, I, I work in California part of the time. I work in New York, I, I, you know, whatever it is. And it is certainly the situation that, you know, I'm not in a position to move, but there are two things about it. One is that people always underestimate elasticity because they look at the moving side, right? But they don't realize is that the really important effect is the thousands of people say, I won't be caught dead opening up my new business in and fill in the blank for the name of the state. And one of the things that we know about regulation is not even these geniuses at the state level have figured out how to tax people who don't do business or don't reside in their particular jurisdiction. So uh, they are going to suffer a really very large situation. The shams won't help it. They have to essentially think about fundamentally sound results. And Connecticut is on that list. New York is on that list. New Jersey is on that list. California is on that list. Illinois is on that list. They're all blue states. And there are two points about it. One is you can see why they oppose the Trump reforms. But the more important story is none of these people who are running these economies seem to realize uh, that they're basically running their systems into a ground. And so blue has to think red if they're going to be able to survive this particular change. Maybe you should have phased it in a little bit more slowly. Uh, but 
all the plans to increase taxes in places like New Jersey are going to be DOA, dead on arrival, uh, because this phenomenon is real and you will see massive migration, particularly of businesses, um, even if there's some people like myself who are essentially committed uh, to staying in certain locations. Richard, lest we lose the mandate to take Trump a la carte, there is widespread anxiety as we're recording this that the president is seriously considering pulling out of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement with uh, Mexico and Canada. If the president does prove to be intent on doing that, what, if anything, could the Congress do to stop him? Well, it's ironic because this is um, something which has been debated many times, and it turns out that the, the most interesting case is sort of somewhat far afield. There's a case called Zivotofsky against Kerry, and the issue was who has the power to decide whether or not to move um, at that particular point uh, to grant a passport with the words Jerusalem or Jerusalem Israel on it. And the Democrats won that one, and they said that Congress had no control over the president on this particular aspect of foreign policy. If you look at NAFTA, it's surely a foreign policy issue, and all the power resides with the president as a default measure if there's nothing specific done. And then if you start looking at the agreement, he's got pretty much unilateral power to do this sort of thing, which is, in my view, putting a bomb in the hand of a child when it comes to this particular issue. So what's he going to have to do? There's not going to be a legal way to stop this. You may be able to slow it up a bit. And my view is anyone who wants to bring a lawsuit who can avert this would be blessed, even if it turns out it's utterly unsound. But what the president has to do is to understand why this is the most mindless possibility he could have. He has essentially managed to create a domestic economy through people like Naomi and many others, um, which is just perking along. Growth may well reach 4% this year. The stock market just went up another 205 points today in the Dow, notwithstanding the fact that we have this stuff about foreign trade hanging over us. And what he has to do is to look at this in a slightly more rational way than he has done, and this is what he will conclude. Um, all the stuff that we export, much of which comes from red state, is a huge boon to the American companies that sell it. And all the stuff that we import is a huge boon to the consumers and American companies that buy it, much of which they're going to resell again in the export trade, given the complexity of international transactions. There may be a gap, say $80 billion, relatively small in a $25 trillion economy. Well, that just counts as foreign investment in the United States, which should boost essentially the opportunity for jobs. So what you do is the three components associated with international trade are all positive, and the president, who's a stable genius now, when you add the three positives up, you come up with a negative. And he, people just have to keep hammering on this man uh, that this is the most destructive thing. What will happen is my guess is the stock market will probably give up a minimum of 10% of its gains within a very short order if this thing actually starts to go through. He will then guarantee that his party will lose the election because right now the Midterms basically boil down to the following choice. We have Donald Trump with the lowest approval rates in the history of the United States for a first-term president and an economy that's relatively roaring. If you vote personality, the Democrats control everything. If you vote the economy, the Republicans should keep and enlarge their situation. What Mr. Trump has to do is not make himself the X factor. What he has to tell the people who support him is followed. 
Look, I fixed the domestic economy. We have jobs coming back to these towns that seem to be desert. I don't need to mess up the foreign market because the deregulation in the domestic market has basically meant that the forgotten man and the forgotten woman are now remembered by this administration. I think the foreign trade stuff actually works. I've listened to Professor Epstein and thousands of other people tell him this, and I'm just going to back off on all of that stuff because unless you can show me some serious defect, I'm not going to touch it. And the last thing you want to do is to interrupt the very complicated manufacturing cycles for automobiles in which things shuttle back and forth between the United States and Canada and Mexico and put together these boundary conditions, which will result in major harm for everybody in the United States and will take our two closest allies in many ways and make them turn to third parties. And then he has to reconsider what he's done with world trade generally, as everybody else is forming alliances of which we're not a part. Trade is his biggest danger in terms of the economic stuff, uh, and he is so uninformed about this issue. His gut instinct is so bad that he can ruin everything. He's never been explained to himself or to anybody else why it is that deregulation and low taxes work well in a domestic market and turn out to be dead losers. And why is that? He doesn't understand general equilibrium theory, how every part moves in response to everything else. And he thinks of everything as being a plus or minus in a particular deal. And what works for Donald Trump negotiating a hotel lease does not help explain the way in which economies ought to be put together. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.